Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the Apper podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, APRA members and friends. My name is Rachel Brandel-Mayers. I'm Associate Director of Research at the University of Michigan, and I am here with my good friend, Andrea Pachter, to talk with you about how prospect development can lead in women's philanthropy. Andrea, would you like to introduce yourself to our APRA friends? Absolutely, Rachel, and thanks so much for this wonderful opportunity. I spent 15 years working with the Women's Philanthropy Institute at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, and our primary product at WPI was research. And when I started, we had very few data points about how and why gender matters in philanthropy. And by the time I left, we had more than 125 data points that affirm that gender matters in philanthropy. And my own personal feeling about all of this, Rachel, as I think you well know, is that I truly do believe that prospect researchers are the key to unlocking this great treasure that is sitting in organizations' databases. We couldn't be more aligned on that, Andrea. So what I wanted to start us off with is a story that doesn't really have a prospect research beginning, but it's an important story in women's philanthropy. And that is the story of Barbara Streisand. So everybody on this podcast has probably heard about Barbara Streisand. After all, her career has spanned six decades, which is rather amazing. But you may not know as much about her philanthropy. So some years ago, a woman cardiologist treated one of Streisand's friends for heart disease. And the doctor and Streisand forged a friendship out of this opportunity. And in that time, Streisand learned that fewer than 25% of people in clinical trials for heart problems were women. And women's heart disease manifests differently than men's, and it's less likely to be properly diagnosed. So Streisand put her fame and her money to address this inequality and gave $10 million to create the Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Center at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA. On top of that, she raised additional funds from across her network, million-dollar gifts from people like then-mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, Barry Diller, and Diane von Furstenberg, and any number of others And with this $20 million that the doctor collected, she's now able to do significant research on heart issues that affect women. What's really impressed me about this story is how closely it mirrors the research around gender and philanthropy and how women give. So they often give because of personal connection to the cause. So Barbara Streisand became connected to this doctor. They often bring their networks into the conversation. And here was a case where Barbara leveraged her friends and raised an additional $10 million for this center. And the giving is relational. It's not transactional. Barbara Streisand was involved from the get-go and she had continued to be involved. So the purpose of sharing this on this particular podcast is to ask the question, how many of us miss the pleasure of an opportunity to work with donors like Streisand who bring their all to the table to make a huge difference. And that's where I truly do believe that prospect researchers who are the best at digging and examining the data can play an incredibly valuable role. 
You know, Andrea, the other thing that I really like about this example is that statistic that you gave towards the beginning when you were talking about it, about the 25, is it 25% of right. subjects in studies are women? And I think obviously women are 50% or more of the total population. And it just speaks to how our unconscious bias, it can affect the data even, right? So I think that's really interesting. And, and as we think about as prospect development professionals, we can make impact in the women's philanthropy space. I think it's really important for us to be thinking about how our own unconscious bias can be affecting not just ours, but fundraisers as well. One example that I think of when I'm thinking about women's philanthropy is this was years and years ago now, probably at least and I, I'm not remembering all the details, but I remember we track at the University of Michigan mega gifts that are coming in around the world. So gifts of $20 million or above. And part of that research is we provide our community weekly updates on who's giving where. And that triggers us to provide some details about the people who are giving. An alumna of Michigan and her spouse gave a really big mega gift to a different organization. I don't remember which one it was. It doesn't really matter. But the really interesting part was we had never talked to her. We had no idea who she was. And the big reason for that actually is that she changed her name and we lost track of her because we didn't get that name change. And so once we lose that name change, then our address, updates don't work and then and that means that our wealth screens don't work and there you go you've lost someone you have no idea who they are or what they're doing and our vice president was not happy that no one had ever talked to her and that we had no idea that she had such significant capacity and I think it's a testament really to the importance of data and and the work that prospect development does in trying to to keep track of people. And one thing I can say also around our experience at Michigan is being in an inter-campaign period, which we're in right now, is we're really focusing hard on our ultra high net worth population because those are the people that are gonna form our nucleus fund for the next campaign. And we've found at least a handful of ultra high net worth alumni who we discovered through this focus and otherwise we wouldn't have known. And actually for similar reasons, the name change has been, is a really difficult thing to navigate as we're looking to try to identify wealth. Well, nobody said that your work was easy, but <laughs> I know that it's fun. And when you find these successes, then you can you, know, you can figure out other ways to manipulate uh, you know around the information and collect the good stories and word of mouth i think is a really good resource and talking to other people within that class can help bring people to the fore in positive ways so there are ways to solve that the other part of this is yes women are changing their names many women aren't changing their names but it's also important to understand the role of women in household decision making because all too often we don't pay attention to the woman because she's not what we used to call the head of the household. Well, all of that is changing quickly now. 
And in fact, the research would demonstrate that women really are not only making a majority of household spending decisions, like big ticket items like houses, cars, computers, renovations, etc., but they're also making a significant percentage of the household charitable decision making. So in 2021, the Women's Philanthropy Institute Women Give study found that 61.5% of couples make their giving decisions together. So that's a majority of couples actually make their giving decisions together. And I want to emphasize here that the research really focuses on heterosexual couples. There's less research on homosexual couples, and that's a dynamic that we really do need to work a little harder on to get a better understanding. But this 61.5% is a decrease, a significant decrease from 2005 when the last study was done, where nearly 75% of couples made their decisions jointly. What's changed, in my opinion, is that women are making their own money and they are choosing how to spend that money, perhaps without discussing it with their spouse. So when one partner in the household, this study found, when one partner in the household decides, is far more likely to be a woman. The bottom line of all this research to me, Rachel, is that we ignore the women in fundraising at our own peril. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that, Andrea. And I think of my own household. I joke with my husband sometimes that I'm the chief operating officer of our house because I buy everything and it just shows up for him and use it. But yeah, I think you're totally spot on. And I think the reality is that prospect development professionals need to understand, but that we also need to educate our fundraisers on is that we're leaving money on the table by not engaging our women. And, you know, I'm, of course, coming at this from a higher education perspective, but the statistic that you gave around women, around couples, making giving decisions 61.5% of the time, even when the spouse, the woman is not an alum, we still need to be engaging her and thinking about her because she is as important in that giving decision as he is. Well, and furthermore, the data still shows that men die earlier than women. I mean, men are closing that gap, but generally a woman will live about five years longer. And so if an institution has been engaging only the man and not the woman, when he dies, not only do 70% of the time do women take their financial advisor portfolios elsewhere, but they're very likely to make their charitable contributions based on what they care about, not necessarily what the husband supported. So it's incredibly imperative in today's world to engage both members of the couple and to better understand who really is making and driving those decisions, those charitable decisions. But Rachel, you've had a lot of experience with this at Michigan, and you've been working in this area seriously for a number of years. So what has Michigan done? Yeah, thanks for asking that question, Andrea. You know, so it's been a a really fun journey at Michigan. We started our efforts around women's philanthropy thinking about strategy. And we had these strategy sessions that weren't working and we decided to rethink them. And we decided to focus on specific populations, one of which was women and the other is the next generation of donors. And so when we first started this work, a lot of what we did was benchmarking with our colleagues. We talked to Kathleen Lair. 
She's the author of Gender Matters and just a wonderful asset to this work. She's really knowledgeable. And she opened up her network to us and pointed us in directions of other leaders in the space. You know, for those of you who might not be as familiar, Dartmouth has done some wonderful work in this space. There are countless organizations that are doing work in this space that are really valuable. So we did a lot of benchmarking with our colleagues to find out what they're doing in this space. Um, as we started to think about what we wanted to do in in the women's philanthropy space. We have a decentralized fundraising environment. And so that also meant that we spent a lot of time listening to our community and getting buy-in. It's complicated when you're talking about decentralized fundraising operation that spreads 34, 37 different development operations. And so a great way to get buy-in from a lot of people is data because it's objective or at least people perceive it to be objective it's mostly objective and so that's what we did we took a hard look at our internal data also i have to mention that's following the advice of gender matters kathleen recommends that you start by looking inward and find out what your data has to say which i think is really great advice and taking a look at your data is an it's an interesting journey to go on because you don't you know you can start asking some questions but you don't always know you don't know what the answers are going to be and you don't know what it's going to tell you and you know where you need to dig in to find the opportunity so at Michigan we started with a couple questions we wanted to understand how women were giving as opposed to men, to Michigan specifically. And that seems like a straightforward question, but as many of us know, that becomes prickly very quickly because it's really difficult to attribute in a household who's making giving decisions. So we had to navigate that and we eventually decided that we were only going to look at alumni because we thought we could attribute giving to whoever the alum was in the household. And so we then have three different categories. We have what we call women-headed households where the woman is the alum, male-headed households where, well, actually more than three, five, but male-headed households where the male is the alum, dual households where both members of the household are alum, and then households where both spouses are women and one is the alum and households where both spouses are men and one of them is the alum. And so anyway, going through that process and comparing one thing that we found that I wasn't necessarily expecting, but that makes sense is the giving that comes from dual alumni households is like three times what any of these other households are doing. So it makes sense. They're both connected to the institution. So there's going to be more giving, but that was striking. And then we found for every dollar a male alumni household gives, a female household gives 41 cents. Since we've started tracking it, it has gone up to 44 cents. So that's good news. But the other thing that we found that's related that I think is really interesting is that the average number of gifts is not very different between those two households. I think it's maybe 0.6 of a difference. So it's not that the women 
households are giving fewer gifts. It's that their gifts aren't as large. But and also, Rachel, isn't it that the women aren't asked as often as the men? Well, I was just going to say that. So that begs the question, then, if they're giving as often or as many gifts, but their gifts aren't as large, the question is why, right? Why aren't they giving similar amounts? And so we then took a look at our managed portfolios to try to understand, like, it's basically, it seems that women aren't giving major gifts. That's sort of the assumption you can make. They're giving as many gifts, but their gifts aren't as big. So then if we go to our managed portfolios and look at those to try to understand, one of the things that we found is that women in our managed portfolios are visited half as often as men are. And that's really telling. And so we've shared those statistics now with our fundraisers. And we actually also worked with our reporting colleagues to create a Tableau dashboard that allows fundraisers to look specifically at their own portfolio and the differences in how they're engaging women in their portfolios versus men in their portfolios. So really trying to create a lot of awareness and education within the community about why this is really important and how changing their best practices to engage women in a different way around philanthropy can in the end mean that they're fundraising more because that's what we're really here to do, right, is to fundraise. And so speaking a little bit to that too, another big piece of the work that we've done so far at Michigan is educating our community on best practices. So we have a group actually that's starting a book club, um, Reading Gender Matters. So I read it a couple of years ago, but, you know, the more people that we have reading it, the better. So they can hear directly from Kathleen what the best practices are and why they need to be thinking about it. We also have worked with our marketing and events colleagues to put together some best practices for our community when they're thinking about marketing pieces or events, how to make sure that those events are inclusive. And of course, women are an important part of that, but I also want to acknowledge the intersectionality of women and the importance of including everyone, not just women, but the whole spectrum of marginalized people. And so this education piece has been really important for our community and trying to get them to move the needle. I think the data is a really important piece of that because if we don't have a way of measuring how we're doing, we can't say that we've made progress or not. And now our next step, which we're excited about, is we're in the process of planning some focus groups to start engaging our donors. So up until this point, we've been very internally focused on educating our fundraising staff, but we're going to start communicating with our donors around our efforts in women's philanthropy. So that's really exciting too. Well, and that would not have happened without the work that the Prospect Research Team did to elevate this topic to your broader community. So I want to thank you for taking a leadership role in that. And it will be very fun for everybody involved to hear more clearly what the women donors have to say, because most women donors that we've interacted with over the past number of years are not shy about telling the institutions that they support where they can improve. 
So I'm so excited for that part. It will be so fascinating. Yeah. So one of the things that you could probably talk about in that focus group is to encourage the women when they do have life changes to let the university know, right? Particularly about those maiden names. And if we get all of our donors to be more proactive about sharing, not only, you know, married names, or if they take their maiden name back again, but other factors in their lives, it would make your job as a prospect researcher so much easier. But, But Rachel, do you have any workarounds particularly related to the tracking of your women donors when they change their names? I wish I did. You know, that's a work in progress. So one project that we've started on that I cannot speak to its success yet because we haven't finished is looking at New York Times wedding data. You know, so the assumption there, of course, is that people whose weddings are in the New York Times are more likely to be have the capacity to give major gifts. And that then it helps we then are able to know about what the potential names could be and how do we track those in the database. We haven't totally figured that piece out. So that's one thing that we've been working on but haven't completed yet. Another one in terms of the maiden names is LinkedIn. Now, I'm a huge advocate for employment data for lots of reasons. But specifically in the maiden name space, you know, some women I've started to see will put their maiden name in parentheses, which from a data perspective makes it a lot easier to connect them and keep track of them. So that's a tough issue. Those are the two big things that we're doing to try to address it, but we don't have a good answer for it. It's a tough one. Well, maybe if people who are listening to this podcast have come up with some suggestions, Afra can have a, a particular section on the website to help people think through those and, and any other tools that people have used to solve that dilemma, because it's very interesting. It's not, it doesn't, it's not going away. So no. um, So I, you know, I applaud your persistence and the intentional way in which you have tried to solve these challenges. There was another challenge with the data that you mentioned earlier that I want to bring back to, which is attributing the giving decisions in couples. And one of the easiest ways to do this is for the major gift officer, when that person is having the conversation, is to ask the question. Who makes the decisions in your household? And then to write it in the contact report so that it's in the record. This is a clear case to me where direct communication can help us better understand whether the practice that we're seeing in couples does truly emulate the research. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it makes so much sense for the major gift officers to be asking that question. They should be asking that question anyway, regardless of the data. From a data perspective, having that type of a note in a non-standardized format stored in contact reports is more difficult when you're working with large data sets, but it's better than nothing, certainly. Yeah. Well, one day, one day the data set will have a a column or a tab for that. I just know it will. And it's not, (laughs) it can't be that far away. If only we could design the donor database. Oh, well, I'm sure some institutions have done that, right? (laughs) Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Rachel, you've had all this experience, and yet 
there's still lots of opportunity for other institutions to get involved in this thinking about their donors from a gender perspective a little bit more. So what suggestions do you have? What calls to action could you offer our listeners to to move their needle forward with regard to women in philanthropy? Yeah, so I mean, the first one is, this is a really easy win that anyone can implement today. It's just whenever you're asked for research, make sure to research both members of the household. I think sometimes there can be, we mentioned unconscious bias earlier. I think sometimes there can be this inclination to just research whoever the alum is or to only research the man because we have this unconscious bias that it's the man's job and it's the man's income that is driving a household's capacity. And that's changing more and more. And it's not always true. So I think just doing that, looking at the whole picture. And another thing that I try really hard to do when I'm communicating with gift officers, you know, they'll say to me, oh, can you research such and such a man? And I always research both spouses. And when I respond, I talk about both spouses. I talk about what both spouses are doing. I talk about the capacity in the context of both spouses holding the information. And especially when both spouses are alumni, I'm always really sure to mention what the other spouse's affiliation to the university and reinforce with that gift officer that they should be thinking about those affiliations as well. It's not just about the affiliation to that specific unit. Because we lose dollars thinking about affiliations to one unit, right? We want to be engaging all of their passions. So that's something that's really simple. And that goes along with the second point is talking about the wealth as being attributed to both spouses. It's not his wealth and it's not her wealth either. It's their wealth, right? It belongs to both of them. And I think it needs to be talked about as belonging to both of them. And then a third thing I think project development can be doing, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, is working with vendors to acquire employment data. I think employment data is, I'm a huge fan, as I mentioned earlier. If there's anyone out there who is also a fan, I would love to talk to you about it because I'm very passionate about it. But we believe at Michigan that employment data is a great way of predicting people's capacity and ability to give philanthropically outside of the more traditional forms of wealth, which might be more difficult for some of our our diverse alumni and friends to hold. You know, I'm thinking about redlining and all of those types of things. So employment data, we think, we believe can fill in some of those gaps. And then another one is, I've mentioned this a few times too, is Regender Matters. Kathleen Lair is a great resource. The book is a really easy read and has a lot of really practical advice. Which brings me to the last one, which is the one that I'm really excited about, which is prospect development can be leaders in this space. I think this is a a really great way for prospect development to advocate for pipeline development and also educate their development community about best practices and why this work is important. So there's no one in your development operation that's thinking about women's philanthropy. It can be you 
as a prospect development professional. And I certainly would encourage and recommend that as a prospect development professional, you take advantage of the opportunity to stand up and, and talk about why women's philanthropy is really important. So Rachel, you know, we started talking on this podcast about Barbara Streisand and the song of hers, People Who Need People Are the Luckiest People in the World, has stuck with me throughout this conversation. I want to incline to plagiarize it a little bit and say that fundraisers who have prospect researchers like you advocating for women in the databases and the portfolios are the luckiest fundraisers in the world. Oh, well, thank you, Andrea. I appreciate that. I wish we could play the song, but I think we'd probably have to pay Barbara for that or something. Well, but then she would <laughs> turn it into philanthropic dollars. So that, that, that's a good thing, too. But I'm so glad to have had this opportunity to have this conversation with you. You know how strongly I feel that prospect researchers are a pivotal force to moving the needle on women's philanthropy because you've got the answers in your hand. They're not always easy to find, but it really requires changing the mindset and elevating the research that you find. I love the way you talked about sharing both the husband and the wife when you share the information, when you may have only been asked for the husband. Those are subtle ways to change the culture. And it, it's only going to take a couple of times when the fundraiser can then achieve a greater success with the information that you provide for the fundraiser to get on the bandwagon and the culture truly will be changed. This is systemic change. It's one donor at a time. And when the day is done, the organization has far more resources at its fingertips to fulfill its mission. And that's really why we do this work, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's exciting work. Andrea, Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the upper community. I really appreciate you taking the time. And of course, for all that you've done for the women's philanthropy effort. Well, the greatest joy is to be able to work with people like you, people who are really making the difference on the ground. So thank you, Rachel, for this opportunity. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.